Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole, and I am joined, I would say a special guest, but okay, he's special now, but then he's going to be joining me every single week of the NFL season. Uh, Ryan Paganetti, those people who know Ryan uh, via Twitter, you can follow him at Paganetti. Ryan, he joined the podcast a few weeks back. He is a former coach and game management specialist with the Eagles. So Ryan, first off, welcome. And uh, I'm hoping you're going to, you're going to solve a few things for me here. This is what I need you to solve for me here. Uh, the YouTube comments, they'll common, commonly say, number one, you never played the game, you know? So, so you you check that mm. box. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to handle that for me. Number two, um, you're soft. You were a running back. Not only did you play the game, you're a running back. So that, yeah. that, that's a punishment, high intense position. So you have that for me and you were a coach. So when we're criticizing coaches and they say, Hey, why don't you become a head coach and figure these things out? Why don't you become a coach? Figure out? You have the coaching angle. So I, I appreciate you coming on and handling all of that for me. Yeah, I'm sure at some point I'll say some things and people are going to be like, this guy's a bad man. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's just another one of you nerds or something. I'll, I'm sure I'll get classified there either way. Yeah, yeah. You'll probably get the, oh, yeah. Well, now now he's never getting back into the NFL with these takes. Yeah. With these, that, 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 they'll come, that, they'll come why, for yeah, you. That's why he's not in the NFL, exactly. <laughs> So they'll, they'll come for you no matter what, but at least we have that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help re rebut some of these things on there. And so what we're going to do is this is a Wednesday edition, but we're going to have Tuesday morning podcasts every week following up. Uh, we're going to review some of the stuff that went on the previous week. It's not going to be, you know, your typical game by game sort of review. We're going to try to get into some things a little bit deeper, look at some things from a game management angle also, since that was what one of your specialties when you're with the Eagles, you were on the headset with uh, Doug Peterson discussing these things. And then we're going to do a little preview of the Thursday night games. The Thursday night schedule actually doesn't look as bad as I was thinking that sometimes it does this year. Uh, I think it helps when you have like Jags, Bengals that you have now Joe Burrow and, and Trevor Lawrence this year. So there are going to be some interesting things to go into a little bit deeper on those previews and what we're looking for. But before we get into that, uh, I want to quickly, quickly let everyone know uh, PFF, we have a promo code kickoff 30 that is still in effect through September 13th. So anyone who's getting ready for a very late fantasy draft, anyone who's getting into the DFS season, anyone who wants to get all of the NFL and college information that we have available, uh, first time subscribers, you get 30% off with kickoff 30 at PFF. Um, I'm actually doing a draft tonight. So, so I'm rather very much on the late side on fantasy drafts. So I, of course we have rankings, not only from myself, but other fantasy analysts. And we also gonna have some stuff on these showdown single game contests that I'm doing a lot of stuff for this season. All right. So let's get into the first thing I want to discuss now, before we do a preview, we have nothing to review, right? So before we do a preview, I want to talk about kind of theoretically when we're reviewing games, when you're looking back at, at what happened uh, in a previous week, uh, obviously there's like advanced scouting and other things that have that, that gone on that you're very familiar with for being on, on the inside. What are you thinking about when you're watching a game and even reviewing a game? Like what are the things that jump out to you or, or do you have a system for how you would analyze these games? Well, so if I was like, you know, on the team side, looking at, you know, maybe opportunities of like, okay, we're playing an upcoming opponent. Um, in particular, like I take a really close look at like first and second downs. Um, I, and I know there's been some research kind of suggesting, you know, uh, like third down production is, is somewhat random. Um, 
you know, red zone's a little bit of a different situation. Like you obviously want to be good in those things, but from like a year to year basis, there's, you know, it's sort of hard to be like predictive in those categories. Right. But, you know, for the most part, you know, these teams that are good on first and second down or like they do are doing interesting things in first and second down, like year over year, there's some consistency there. Um, and even like game over game. So for me, like just like watching a game in particular, like if it's Dallas versus Tampa tomorrow night, like I'm looking at like how effective those teams are on those like normal situations. And, you know, like how often are they in like second and tens? How often are they in second and twos? Like how, how are they when they're in second and 10? Are they just like running the ball and bringing up a third and eight? Like, um, but in general, just like sort of getting a feel for like, you know, how effective they are on those downs. And realistically, in my opinion, and just based off the data that I've seen, like the teams that are generally avoiding third down because they're so impressive on first and second down, like those are the teams that, you know, are impressive to me. And, and those are the teams like over the course of the season that are going to score a lot of points and be very good offenses and even and on the same thing on defensively, you know, just are they getting teams to third down, even if they give up some conversions, you know, like, are they at least getting them in situations where it's third and six and third and sevens. And, you know, over the course of the season, they're going to win more often than not on those, but, you know, maybe on an individual game basis, they, they might, you know, give up four for four on third and seven plus, but over the course of the season, like they're going to get a lot of stops there. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, the third down thing is something that's come up a lot. I think there is, it's one of the, it's, it's one of like many different things when you, when you think about it, like there's a higher degree of randomness yet being able to identify players or quarterbacks or teams who can convert on a higher than average level is also important, right? You don't want to just assume that Patrick Mahomes is going to regress back to your league average right. type of conversion rate on that sort of thing. Um, well, it's interesting, you know, I want to, when you mentioned that, the thing that I thought about is how much do do you think teams think about like in-house in a way, like their own offense in that sort of way? I mean, famously, you know, I don't want to bring up too much of like the Eagles every two seconds, right? But Carson Wentz 2017 was one of the examples that a lot of people point to when they say someone who had this absurd uh, conversion rate you know, the EPA per play and success on third down, which was supposed to be a signal, you know, a flashing signal to the fact that that could have more trouble in in the future. Do you think that's something that like offensive coordinators would also look at in their own offense and maybe, you know, temper expectations or be more positive going forward, depending upon where they've come out on the luck on those different situations, or is it tough as a coach to do that? Is it more like a coach? Hey, we need to just execute and not worry about whether things are going to regress or not. Yeah, I, I think um, that always to me was a, such a significant concern that it's like our third down production, even like third and long, we were like off the charts. Yeah. I think we were number one in 2017 and like red zone efficiency as well. And obviously, you know, I'm familiar with the research done in the past. I think Football Outsiders has done a lot of good stuff on this, like historically. Um, and I'm like, look, we were sort of average on first and second downs. And, you know, like that's something where if we can – like year over year, I was trying to emphasize, like, if we can, you know, get be one of the best teams at first and second downs, um, you know, we're going to be hard to beat. Like, and that's going to be something like, you know, game over game week, like week over week, like we're going to be a good offense. And we tried to like focus on that. And we, unfortunately, like we sort of even took a step back on first and second downs in addition to the regression on third downs, the regression on, on red zone. Um, So it was kind of like, a nightmare scenario from that standpoint. But I think one thing that, you know, a lot of coaches that I've sort of talked to get a little caught up with is like, they realize that third downs and red zone 
are so important in, in like an individual game. And I think they, you know, almost overemphasize being good in those categories um, just because realistically they do have a, like a disproportional impact on like an individual game outcome, but right. on like a season outcome, it's to me the first and second down effectiveness that you really would want to be focused on and sort of like, I, it, it was a sort of a challenge for me at times, like communicating that it's like, okay, cool. We were good at third downs last year, but like, it's going to be hard to be as good on third downs this year. And, you know, like there was room for improvement on first and second down, you know, and, and realistically the, the, the saints or the chiefs or new England, like these teams, you know, year in or year out that are good on offense. Like they were, they're always excellent on those downs. And, and that's really where we want to focus. And I think even just like the way that teams are orienting their practice schedules, like you have, most teams around the league from my you know background of what I've seen and what I've heard is like if they have three days of practice like it'll be Wednesday will be first and second downs um Thursday will be something like you know third downs fourth downs short yard situations and then Friday might be like a red zone day or two minute day like some combination and um I almost think you should just spend way more time on first and second downs and um and like make sure your game plan is on the money there because if you're like solid there like you're going to be a good team but it's almost like it's getting weighted as like one third of the importance of the game but realistically like your your red zone offense doesn't matter if you're not getting there or like you you might practice all this third down stuff but like you don't even want to be in third and eight pluses or third and twelves and things like that you'd like to not even be in i mean you look at the best like offensive performances recently like they're not even getting to third downs um, but I think, you know, just sort of factoring in like, you know, okay, last game we went five for five on, in the red zone. That's great. But like being aware of the fact that like, that's unlikely to continue is always important. And, um, cause realistically, you know, if you're, if you get, you get two of those red zone drives as touchdowns, I mean, that's a huge gap in points over the course of an individual game. And, but realistically the red zone, like efficiency around the league is not, it's not a hundred percent. It's yeah. not even 80%. It's not 70%. So like you should anticipate that even if you're like an excellent team, you're not hitting those numbers. Yeah. Just being, yeah. being aware of it. Like, I mean, you'll see teams win games sometimes and they, they go, you know, three of three in the red zone, but then a team loses and they went, you know, two of six in the red zone. Well, I want to be the team that got in the red zone six times for like future games, obviously. So it's, those are some things that I kind of think about. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing a quick little data study on this is going to seem like ancient history because of the perception shift here. But um, people may remember that Marcus Mariota was one of these guys who had this like really insane red zone efficiency. Um, his first, I don't know, maybe three years of his career or something like that. So, you know, I just did a really easy data study where I just compiled every other quarterback going back to guys who were drafted, I think after 2000 or later said, let's look at their first three seasons, how well they performed in the red zone. And then let's just go ahead and plot that out against how well they performed over roughly the same number of dropbacks. Let's say like a thousand dropbacks, their next thousand dropbacks. And you know, there's like no correlation basically Mm -hmm. between how, between how efficient those guys are. So yeah, I think the tension is, and this is probably like a thematic thing that we're going to talk about a lot when reviewing games. The tension is on one side, you have what affects outcomes, right? So turnovers, third down, how well well you play on third down, like red zone efficiency. 
um, penalties sometimes these big, these big penalties. So you have like things that can really have a high level where if you're just going to, you know, plot one thing versus wins, you know, versus point differential, however you want to do it, those are going to be extremely important, but you don't have your ability to affect those things, your ability to control those things. They're very, very random at at the same point in time. So I think Mm -hmm. that's probably like the, the, in the risk reward, let's say the opportunity cost that you're talking about, what are you going to spend time on? I mean, coaches are just going to be constantly like harping on whether or not a running back that fumbles, let's say, or something like that, or even pull running backs from games. If they're fumbling, when there's just a high degree of randomness to it, it's extreme. I mean, it's a hugely negative play, right? But there's an extreme degree of randomness to it. So I think that's probably really important. And a lot of the stats that I compile afterwards is saying, you know, like you said, third down conversions, how well is the team doing versus what you think fumbling uh, special teams sometimes, like how well a team's doing a special teams versus that penalties, all these sorts of things go into an adjustment that you can make to say, how well did a team play versus, you know, w- w- trying to discount some of the randomness out of that number. Yeah. I'd say the, the one thing I'd say about fumbles is um, I know people like to talk about, you know, what went on with new England and all that, but yeah, I think to some degree, the, the, fumble frequency can be explained not lost fumbles but the fumble frequency can be somewhat explained by you know coaching emphasis on the players um yeah you know in terms of like managing risk like one thing that makes me want to just like lose my mind when i'm watching a game is like say a, a receiver rips off a big catch and they're going towards the goal line and it's clearly going to be first down and they like reach the ball out to like get the ball over and it's like guess what like you're you're taking such an outrageous chance of like fumbling this ball and it going out of the back of the end zone and it being a turnover when if it's first in and goal from the you know half yard line the yeah. expected points of the offense is like nearly certain to get a touchdown <laughs> and it's just like like i think you know there's certain emphasis of like okay at first and second downs like our our um our running backs so like are they are they securing the ball like is the quarterback from an interception standpoint like why is it, why are some quarterbacks taking like ridiculous risks on first and second down in the first half of a game, as opposed to the guys that are, you know, throwing to receivers that are pretty clearly open. It's like now once the, the plays, you know, that are, you're, you're sort of behind the sticks or like the magnitude is a little bit greater. It's like third down or fourth down. And, you know, a turnover doesn't really matter as much. Like I can understand like ramping up the risk and stuff, but when you see, you know, quarterbacks being like super aggressive, trying to fit balls in like tight windows or making risky throws on first and second downs, I'm like, that's something that New England never has done for like 20 years. And I know, um, I think Brady was like talking about something recently about just sort of like really, and I think he just sort of gets underrated from the standpoint of like managing risk and managing the game. And, you know, maybe his absolute yards per attempt or rate stats are never going to be the highest, but in terms of avoiding mistakes, I mean, he's like your game management expert on the field. And, yeah. uh, and, and the total number of mistakes he's had in like, 20 years is probably like you could probably count on like two hands um so i i look at that you know like if it's tomorrow night and you see Dak prescott trying to like rip a ball in there and like it's it's getting knocked down by a linebacker or it's like you know a contested ball on first and 10 in the first quarter like i'm like be, those are chances you don't want your quarterback taking if that makes sense yeah no it makes sense i mean i always think like how how it's being communicated i think is is somewhat important um I mean, so another thing, like other data studies that I've done, and I think it's like you mentioned about Brady, he and Peyton Manning also, like I used to, I've done some things where I've plotted um, 
you know, INT rate versus what the win probability is at a particular time. So both of those guys have a very logical uh, 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 trend there where they're throwing more interceptions when their win probability is lower and, and vice versa, as opposed to, I remember there was this data study that got some, some play around about Jameis Winston and the fact that he was throwing a lot of interceptions on low expected points plays. But the problem was, that field position wasn't accounted for that. So I think he was like just throwing a lot of interceptions near his yeah. own end zone, which is not like right. on first down, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that he's not doing a first down. And I plotted him and he's just like completely flat. Like he just throws interceptions at the same rate, no matter what the situation is, no matter who's going on. So it's having those sort of smart things. But when you're communicating that to a player, um, because because like it, like a nerd would say like oh you could you know you could be like in basketball where daryl moray or whoever would sit down with shane battier and he would just absorb all of this crap or you could sit down with a player and say see like expected points or obviously you're not going to say that but if you just tell them don't do something stupid like reach the ball over the goal line i mean it's very cool to dive into the end zone and like put put it over the goal line like these guys have this instinct so like i always wonder that part of like can it be effective to actually use these analytical concepts to communicate or is it better just to hit these like broader themes of don't do something dumb basically i think i think you just have to sort of develop a standard and like a culture and it's got to come from like the top down whether that's your head coach and just be like look this is how we play football and i don't care how much money you you make or what your uh your what your name is like this is what the like for example this is what the patriots do this is our way of doing things and if you don't do this like you're not going to play i don't care if you're like you make a lot of money i don't care if you're a first round pick um and i actually remember like i had somebody I think who had either worked in New England or at Alabama or had, they, they had crossed paths with some people with New England people. And they had said that there was like a saying going around in New England that was effectively something like the fate of everyone in the organization, including their children is dependent <laughs> on you not fumbling that ball. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. basically yeah. Like threatening them that like children aren't going to be able to eat food because you're going to get employees fired if you are reckless and fumble the ball. And I think also just like in terms of your like roster allocation, like if you have these, you know, high paid running backs and they fumble, well, you're clearly still going to play them. But I think when you, when you don't have like high paid running backs or like maybe the receiver group is not, you know, paid a ton of money and those guys make mistakes well like okay you can theoretically punish them and like prove it make a point like i know new england in the past like they've had guys you know fumble and maybe they get deactivated for the next game or something or they're just or they're they sort of lose their spot in the rotation temporarily and kind of have to earn it back but i think just having some level of punishment as opposed to some other teams you know like they might have a a running back making 12 million dollars a year and he fumbles and and like he's going to be out there the next drive. Like you're not going to like, and then, and then other players on the team see that and they're like, well, whatever, like he's fumbled, nothing happened. And I think it sort of sets the tone for the whole team. It's kind of an interesting philosophy, but yeah, like this like threat and like this like perception to like really, and it really is true. Like, I mean, if you're, you know, part of an organization and maybe you're like an equipment intern and, and the, the team is fumbling at a very high rate, like, you know, every single employee in that building is at risk of like losing their job. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting way of like capturing the magnitude of it and trying to like make it feel real for the players. Yeah, yeah, no, no, we, okay, okay. Uh, okay, I think part of my um my displeasure when I see these guys being pulled if they're fumbling too much, part of it is, is like fantasy football. I'll admit, like, yeah. there's nothing that tilts fantasy football players more than 
like back in the day, Stephen Ridley would fumble and then they take him out of the game and they would put in LeGarrette Blunt or someone and everyone would just be going insane. Or I remember those first round pick David Wilson who played for Tom Coughlin for the Giants and he like fumbled the first or second play of his rookie season. And it's basically like you never saw it again the yeah. entire rest of the time. And people got really upset about that. But what I do think is interesting when we're talking about watching, like what perspective you get from, from watching a game when it comes to fumbling. And you can get some of this from data too, is yeah, different types of fumbles are different too, right? Like you mentioned receivers, those are often going to be the costliest fumble because if that receiver is not recovering his own fumble, normally the proportion of defenders surrounding him versus his own offensive players is is you know very, very high. So you're going to lose a lot of those. Uh, a running back next so, um, especially if they're breaking something downfield, but if they're in, you know, they're close to the line, at least there are offensive linemen and other yeah, people that being sure. there. And a quarterback, um, I remember even for QBR for their for when they do the statistic at ESPN and they calculate that the value like they, they try to make it as if a fumble, when you recover your, your own fumble, uh, a team recovers its own fumble, it's weighted just as heavily as having lost it. But they do make an exception for a fumble that the quarterback recovers himself because often those are kind of like little muffed plays where you're just recovering your own fumble. So I do think there is context with fumbles also as far as how uh, dangerous they are. Yeah, the, 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 the shotgun snap fumbles, in my opinion, are a huge uh, thing that sort of jacks up the fumble rates and like, fumble conversion can like recovery percentages and things like that because a lot of times you know it's just a bad snap maybe it touches the ground or something and um you know the quarterback jumps on it or grabs it and just throws it away and like um in general like I wouldn't be like overly worried about those like obviously you want your center and like the quarterback to be on the same page but um it's really the ones where you got like receivers and backs being like fairly reckless with the ball um that kind of are concerning or another one that like is kind of crazy to me is like the it's like it's first and goal at the one and you run like a, a running back dive play and they jump over and try to reach it over. And it's like, boom, pop the ball out. And we would coach our linebackers. Like if you see that ball get like any sort of air, like attempt to reach the ball over, like go punch that thing. Like, because that that's such a massive win probability and expected points change. If you can knock that ball out. Um, now, if it's third or fourth down, like that's a different story on the goal line, go ahead and jump over, reach over, do whatever. Like you'd see the Drew Brees uh, quarterback sneak on the goal line that he's done all this so many times where like he would just jump and like reach the ball over the top. And that's, and that's usually would only occur though on like, say like third or fourth down or whatever. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting deal. And like, I think it's funny, you know, like everyone said on New England, you know, like the balls are fixed, like they're going to start fumbling at a high rate. And then they just like continued to have a very low rate. And it's like, okay, well maybe they're doing something besides for that. Yeah, yeah, that went, the, the analysis on that went back and forth. And I think the final conclusion was probably they weren't doing anything because nothing, nothing had changed. And the number, I think there was a lot of stuff included in there, like special teams and other things that maybe shouldn't have been included in initial data studies that right. were saying that they were, they were doing something. Although I like to think that they were doing something because. I, know, I think it's so <laughs> easy for everyone in the league to just assume that the team that is the best over long periods must be doing yeah. something that's unfair, but I I also agree. Like it, I think it's very marginal and I've actually heard of players like juicing up the balls of way above the PSI. Like some yeah. of these quarterbacks apparently like that and no one says anything, but yeah. like, I don't think it's really that big of a deal. Like it's just, it was just an excuse to say why New England was winning. Yeah. 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 And I think the biggest factor in those types of like a reason to have skepticism, whenever you see anything like that is like, if you have enough teams 
um, over enough period of time, like, like if you have enough subsets of teams, let's look at like three-year windows or whatever they're looking at of enough teams over enough period of time, you have hundreds of three-year windows. Someone is going to be fumbling way, way more often than someone else. And someone's going to be fumbling very little, just if it was completely random and you were just randomly assigning fumbles to, to different teams. That's another thing to, to think about maybe when you're looking at these big, big analyses. Um, okay. So we mentioned the third down stuff. You had this fumble tangent. Is there anything else that you look at? Um, I, I thought about penalties, but again, that's another one of the things where it's probably hard to figure out what's discipline, what's bad luck. Um, especially when we come to things like a defensive pass interference, which could be massive swings. Some of them look like they're almost 50, 50, you know, ball. They say 50, 50 balls, but even those are probably not really 50% chance of being caught in a lot of these circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I think to some degree, if you're evaluating like, you know, individual players performances or quarterbacks performance, like I do think you'd probably want to, even though that like the scorekeepers aren't granting those yards on like DPIs and things like that. I think, you know, if you're on like the team side, you would almost want to like, give credit to a receiver who created a DPI or give credit to a quarterback that threw a ball that ended up with a DPI in terms of like predictive value going forward. Um, but I think to me, just like, uh, or particularly like tomorrow night, like just seeing how the game is sort of officiated from like, no one really knows, like, are they going to be calling holding? Are they going to be doing this? Like, are these, are these certain points of emphasis going to actually happen? Um, and then just, I like to just keep up on a little bit of like the, you know, general concepts that seem to be something that, you know, could give you a little bit of an edge. Like, all right, are these teams throwing the ball a lot on first down early on in the game? Are they running a lot of play action? Like, are they using a lot of shifts in motion? And like, I know there were, there was some work done recently on like motion at the snap. And that was like an interesting concept that I think more and more teams are trying to implement because, you know, there, there is a pretty compelling amount of data supporting that those plays are, are sort of you know, generating more expected points in the run game and the pass game. And so I just kind of look for some of these, like, you know, creative things that maybe are a little bit like analytics friendly that might be happening early on in the game. And then I don't, I almost don't worry too much about later on game stuff. And that's more when I kind of look at like game management type situations rather than a lot of times those, the later on the game, you're just dealing with like managing the score, whether you're winning or losing and, uh, you know, acting accordingly from like a schematic standpoint, um, so that's just sort of how I look at it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The, the penalties thing is interesting. Uh, I mean, this is totally anecdotal. I should probably have crunched numbers before saying something like this. But it seemed to me like the first week or two of the preseason, there were a ton of holding calls and then they were leveling off. And I think that's kind of like a, a common phenomenon. Last year, early in the season, holding penalties were way, way down. And that probably contributed to this scoring explosion that we saw where like if you looked in the betting markets uh, overs were hitting consistently all the time because teams were scoring so many points this year i think that i mean that that's something like holding generally is something to, to to pay attention to this year i think the rule change where it's basically outside of the I don't know it's outside of the tackle box and within five years five yards of line of scrimmage there's this new rule where uh, offensive offensive blockers and those who are taking on blocks cannot go low anymore. Um, so the thought, you know, initially the thought was, you know, this is bad because you're thinking about it from a blocker's perspective. They can't go out and cut guys. But now the thought is, and I think this is really interesting to see, is that maybe if you're running these wide zone runs or screen passes, you know, the defensive backs, 
they can't go low on these blockers anymore. Like, how are they going to deal with a guard coming out there who, you know, it could make it actually very, very difficult. And those plays may become, you may see more explosive plays there where you can't just neutralize a block and at least get in the player's way if you're a defensive back on that. So I think that's an interesting rule change to watch mm-hmm. that could have big ramifications. Yeah, I think uh, there's, you know, there's been ups and downs, but these like crack toss concepts where these teams have like basically, you know, wide receivers or tight ends just block down hard and then they pull maybe like two guys and it's two offensive linemen like running full steam ahead and theoretically like they're you know they're either engaging linebackers or safeties or corners um yeah. and you know those matchups are are tough to win you know when you're you have a hundred plus pound weight disadvantage so you know just it just at least you know dive bombing in there and like slowing it up or like setting an edge was helpful and and i don't know if they'll be able to do that anymore so that might be interesting to keep an eye out on yeah, yeah, I think it'll be interesting just to see like the percentage of explosive run plays if that starts to tick up a little bit. Um, because that's always been like the real like differentiator, right? Between like the success rates may be roughly equal between running and passing, but you just don't have the upside with the upside when you run the ball is versus when you pass the ball. So if that starts to level out a little bit, of course, we're not gonna be on here. Uh, you know, claiming for exotic smash mouths for every team, but it could, it, it could have a little bit of effect effect this year. Okay. So we're going to transition here to talking about the Thursday night game, but before we do that, we will talk about some fantasy and betting angles there. So I want to tell you guys about fan tracks. Those who may have watched, we did a fantasy football draft with fan tracks amongst the PFF fantasy team. Um, it's a new platform that's available, super easy to use, and it has potential to put salaries in there, contract options, generate unique scoring systems. And of course you can go ahead and import all of your league information from another platform straight into fan tracks. And now you can get a free account, uh, promo code PFF at fantracks.com slash PFF. You have a chance to win a regular season, a trip to a regular season game of your choice, uh, for your entire league plus six grand. So go ahead and go to promo code PFF at fantracks.com slash PFF. And another sponsor we have is DraftKings. So uh, DraftKings, not only do we have the fantasy side of things that everyone knows about DraftKings, but in quite a few states now, we also have their sports betting and their sports book available. Uh, the NFL is back. Get in on the action before opening night kicks off. Uh, there's a no-brainer offer here. The sports book has moved the spread of Tampa Bay plus 73 for all customers. Uh, that's pretty, I guess they're, they've gone from minus eight to plus 73. So that sounds pretty, pr- pr- pretty strong. Uh, that means you still cash in as long as the reigning champs don't lose by 74 points against Dallas. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to crunch the numbers on this, but I'm going to say that's a pretty, a pretty small chance of happening. Uh, so if you haven't tried DraftKings yet, don't miss out. $200 in free bets instantly when you bet $1 or more on any football game. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFFBET, so P-F-F-B-E-T. New customers bet $1 in any football game, receive $200 in free bets instantly with cro- promo code PFFBET. Uh, must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bet free promotion for new customers only. Minimum $5 deposit. Max wager limits apply, one per customer. Restrictions apply. Uh, see DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. With all that, now you know where to go for all of your, your, your betting needs. Let's talk about this Thursday night game. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit just up top. We're talking about some of the betting stuff and mostly because like it's information. So I think like if anyone is discussing this game and doesn't have context of the fact that the Bucks are an eight point favorite, which by I looked at the, the games last season in 2020, this would put it about the 15th percentile for being the biggest spread. So this is not a close game by like historical standards where, where people may be, may be thinking about it a different way. So if you're not thinking about that, um, if you're not thinking about the fact that the implied totals for what teams are going to score, Tampa Bay is, is about 29.75 points. Dallas is 21.75. So there's a, there's a big gap there between that and how much the teams will score. So I think that's all important stuff to think about up top. Now, what I want to dub this, and this is actually going to bring up our, our friend of me, uh, Josh Hermsmeyer on this. He was very famous. And yeah, I, I just assume people know about all these uh, Twitter nonsense conversations, but he was famous for a couple of years ago or infamous. I should say a couple of years ago, he talked about quote unquote defenses don't matter. Now I know that's probably going to hurt as a former defensive coach to, to, to hear that. But the theory was when he was modeling for offensive outcomes, who like which defense a particular player was facing did not show up as being significant enough where if he was going to try to have a very parsimonious small model, it didn't really affect things. So I think this game in particular is like a good test subject on defenses mattering because you have two offenses who are strong offenses, probably two quarterbacks who people consider to be top five, maybe Dak being on the, on, you know, on the cusp of top five, but yet you have two defenses. You have one, Tampa Bay, who was fifth in EPA per play on defense last year, performing even better down the stretch. Dallas was surprisingly 20th. I thought they'd be even worse in EPA per play, but I think they were just so bad to start the season that people didn't really pay attention to the fact that they got a little bit better to end the season, but they they had no offense going forward. So I'm going to put this to you. Do defenses matter? Do we have to, like, how are you thinking about the defenses in this game where you have a great defense who brought everyone back, right? They, they, they ran it back with bringing back all their different players versus a poor defense who shifted everything up, including the defensive coordinator bringing in Dan Quinn. How do we think about, like, what's going to happen in this type of matchup? Um, I, well, one, I do think defenses matter. And I think, okay. you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> he's, on, I, he's on record here. He's on record to say defenses matter. I think, you know, uh, like, sure, you can outscore other people at times and everything, but, you know, you're you're allocating, like, between all your employees and, and you know, players and stuff, like, you're allocating, like, tens of thousands of hours on, on trying to, you know, stop other teams and things like that. And if you just, like, didn't spend that time, you know, like, Aaron Rodgers is going to spend – you look like Bishop Sycamore on defense. <laughs> and like, like you just, like, 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 the outcomes that you're seeing are even though, you know, these defenses are doing everything possible to slow down these teams. You know, some of these defenses are doing a great job. And, I mean, even look at the Super Bowl, like, you know, I mean, Tampa did an outstanding job against Kansas City. Um, and I just think in general, like, you know, yes, you can be a, you know, a fairly decent team, you know, just scoring a ton of points and things like that. But, you know, when it comes down to the, the actual playoffs, winning those close games against good teams. I mean, you have to have at least somewhat of a competent defense and like how good is that's a little bit debatable maybe, but you know, there's a reason like Belichick as a defensive coach is considered the best coach in NFL history. And um, I think you'll see even more like an emphasis on, you know, these defensive coaches as these offenses continue to succeed. It's like maybe you see a little bit of a push towards more teams hiring defensive head coaches just to kind of come up with some kind of answers. Because like, if you're playing Aaron Rodgers or Pat Mahomes and 
you just aren't good enough defensively. Like it's the most like disheartening thing as a coaching staff, like, or, or a team or an organization. Like you think of teams like the Raiders in recent years who actually like were pretty good on offense and they just simply were nowhere near good enough to stop guys like Mahomes. And it's like, it doesn't matter if we score 38 because they're going to score 48. And it's just, it's tough for the whole organization in my opinion. But um, I think in general, like the, the number for Dallas is a little bit misleading at 20 because for expected points per play, because they, they were struggling so badly in run defense mm-hmm. that they were just facing a ton of runs. And obviously the average expected points on runs is lower but um, so like, but other teams are just incentivized to just continue to run the ball, which would bring that, that EPA per play from like a league wide standpoint down, but they still weren't exactly slowing people down very much. Yeah. Um, I think just the fact that you like Todd Bowles should be an NFL head coach. Like he, what he did last year in the last couple of years in Tampa was outstanding. Um, I think, you know, just being able to bring everyone back and having a communication standpoint, like having those guys all on the same page, uh, defensively when you're dealing with things like shifts, motions, unusual alignments, you know, stacks, like, like how are you handling, how are you passing off routes? Like all that stuff I think is really critical. And like that, particularly with like, you know, fitting up the run game or, or, you know, dealing with, you know, un- more, more unique passing concepts, like Kellen Moore is going to call some things that, you know, they haven't seen and like being, having your players have answers of like, okay, if number three goes across the formation, if number two goes across the formation, like, these guys you know switch release like just having everyone on the same page and having that veteran experience is very valuable and that's where I would be concerned from Dallas's standpoint it's like just are these guys going to be on the money in terms of like you have so many new players you have a brand new defensive coordinator like um, it's just a lot easier when you get like year over year if you have those guys that are experienced in the same system I mean I know Dallas is going to play some rookies as well um, and you know there might be some uh ups and downs there from a, like a mental standpoint or matching things up or, or like missed assignment standpoint. But um, I think, you know, the continuity on defense, particularly when the guys are like talented is, is very useful and important, particularly to just like avoid mental errors that could be like catastrophic wide open 70 yard touchdowns, as opposed to you got a new coordinator, new players, you know, the odds of something like that going wrong and, you know, somebody just dropping Chris Godwin or whatever, Mike Evans, and, and it's a 65 yard touchdown because they just, they didn't realize who was going to cover the post or whatever and cover four, like stuff like that may have a higher chance of coming up when you have a new staff and new players. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Okay. So to go back to like the defense mattering thing for a second, I think it's like, it's one of these situations where you could make the argument that like quarterback play like determines so much that w- of what's happening on offense that in a way all these hours that you're talking about putting in while it's going into uh defensive performance that's maybe a little bit there's some more randomness there or more dependence upon who you're facing in some ways it could be more valuable because you are working with a, like a le- I mean, it's, it's talent dependent don't get me wrong but it's not just like a talent dependent on so much on one particular person right uh, mm-hmm. where like let's face it offenses just are never going to have a ceiling unless they have that that one particular quarterback who they need and there's not much like very little goes into that right you draft someone hopefully and they become right. that person basically and then beyond that you're developing them you're doing this and that but so everything that goes on the defensive end there's a lot more figuring out how all the pieces go together, how the scheme does goes together, everything else. How much of scheme 
are you thinking about in these types of matchups? In particular, you know, this like the tr- the big thing. Everyone is in, enamored and in love with uh, Brandon Staley. You mentioned the new hot trend, which could happen with head coaches. So he's the guy who's been running a lot more too high types of defenses. It looks like, according to our numbers, a lot of cover four and and cover six. And Dan Quinn is more from the Seattle, you know, lineage, which was more of your cover three, cover one. It looks like they ran a, a, some traditional like cover two stuff, but barely any of the four, cover four and cover six sort of stuff. So how do you, how do you think about that? Do you think this, this evolution is getting overhyped or do you see why this might be the next thing in the, in the NFL? And could that mean that someone like Quinn will have to have to adapt going forward? I think so. I think, I think, uh, having at least some of your scheme involved with the too high and, and, you know, cover four, cover six, like those concepts are, are really, you know, effective in, in the league right now, in my opinion, and it, depending on how you're running them, I think there's in particular, you see value with some of the things like cover four with, when there's like a running quarterback, because you can sort of get those safeties involved in the run defense, because right now, if you're playing like a simple, you know, single high post defense, um, and, and the quarterbacks are involved in the run game, like you have num- numbers issues. Like if you're a single gap defense and it's like, all right, are you having guys two gap? Are you having guys like do something with like the Vic Fangio, Brandon Staley type scheme where like maybe they're playing one and a half gaps, which I think is like a really interesting concept that, that I need to personally look more into. But having just some kind of answer um, against the, the running quarterbacks where you see so many of these quarterbacks that are pretty athletic and they can, you know, make things happen. And, and really, if you, um, if you're just sitting there and you're like stagnant, like post high defenses, like it's, it can be tough. And, and even at times, just like the past games are so good that you have these elite receivers out, out wide and it's like a cover three. And, you know, you're basically turning it into like a one-on-one situation for your outside corners. Um, and so like the cover four and six, like those, those can give those guys a lot more help. Um, like one thing we would do in, in Philly is like, we would, if we were playing like one really elite receiver, we would do like a lot of cover six where we would effectively like be playing man to the side of the elite receiver. So like that way we always had a safety over the top on that side. And then we play like cover four on the other side, if that makes sense. Um, And like, that was something that we felt like, you know, basically gave us enough numbers to, you know, slow down a top receiver if, if a corner needed it. But um, you know, it also allowed us to, you know, play some zone on the other side and, and, play give a look that you know maybe makes the other team run the ball a little bit more and, and it was kind of an interesting like chess match of like how are you dealing with that um because in theory you know like some of that there are some issues with like some of those coverages as well like you know cover four for example like one way i'd be looking to attack that depending on how the defense plays it is like you know going over the top with play action stuff and like the post uh, post route in particular because you, you see a lot of times um realistically like depending on how the number two and number three receiver to a side are running their routes like those guys can basically occupy a safety to that to that side so you can turn you sort of turn cover four into possibly like a cover zero uh, in some cases for the outside receiver and for the outside corner and then so like if you have a you have a guy that can run you have a burner like he's just I mean if you can take a shot at the post whether that's like with a play action and the safety bites or or you're just basically like draining the number two or number three, uh, you're basically draining the safety to that side. I mean, like there's some opportunities there. 
Um, and I think it's just, it's always going to be an interesting like chess match. And I think it's interesting with what, you know, coach Staley has been did last year and what, uh, you know, coach Fangio has been doing. I've talked to some offensive coaches and you ask them like, who's the hardest defense to go against. And for a while, like everyone was saying Vic Fangio yeah. and I think he's proven that with like his, you know, statistical performances of his defenses over the years. And I think you'll see some more copycat stuff, but at the same time, like, you know, a guy like Dan Quinn who has a very, long history of playing defense a certain way. Like sometimes these guys are fairly resistant to change. And I think one thing you'll see even more of like coming forward is, you know, teams just that have a certain identity as like a cover three team or a cover four team and, and, and just being able to, you know, mix in the other, the other looks more frequently. And in and, and, and theory, like run both looks from the same pre-snap alignment when possible, like try to disguise as long as po- possible pre-snap because if you're going up against like Brady and Aaron Rodgers, Mahomes, and like they know what you're in before the snap, like good luck. Like it's hard enough because they can figure it out real fast after the snap, but you know, the longer you can hold off and, and so they're not exactly sure what's going on, the better in terms of giving yourself a chance to, to, to get a stop. Yeah. I mean, but that again, sounds like something where if you have continuity, it makes things easier, right? Like the the more things you put into motion, the more potential for disaster, essentially, if if things, if things are not going well. So yeah, I mean, that, that'll be interesting to see whether or not the Cowboys defense can kind of hold up in this way. Do you think the fact that there was this big discussion on preseason, right? So we had a preseason, we had more of a traditional camp this year versus what we saw last year. And it was always tough to tease out, like, why was there this offensive explosion last year? Was it the lack of preseason? Was it the holding penalties? Was it some, you know, it, you know, extraordinary, you know, the unknown unknown that we can't even think of of why it, why it happened. Do you think any of that helps it benefits the defense more than the offense? Or is it really tough to say? Um, I think uh, it's, it's really tough as a defense to play a team that, you know, you have no idea what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And like the more data you have and, and like, you know, more snaps you see of like an, the identity of an offensive coordinator or even like how that quarterback sort of plays and reads plays, like the, the, the easier it is to stop. And um, the, for me, like I always felt better as a defense, like, you know, it's the middle of the year and you know, like how that offense operates, you know, you really know their, their base run concepts, their base pass concepts as opposed to like early on in the year, like you have no idea what's going to happen. So this, this game's a little bit different in the sense that, you know, I think both teams have a good sense of like what sort of concepts Dallas will run on offense, what sort of concepts Tampa will run on offense for like their base stuff. But, you know, the, every team kind of mixes in some wrinkles and things like that. But um, defensively, like no one really totally knows how Dan Quinn's going to do things. I'm sure, you know, he'll, there definitely will be some overlap to what he was doing in Atlanta and Seattle, but, you know, uh, from Dallas's standpoint, they probably have a pretty good idea of, you know, the general stuff that Todd Bowles is going to do. So I think there's a little bit of advantage from Dallas's standpoint as um, as opposed to Tampa's a little bit wondering, like, all right, what is Dan Quinn going to be doing defensively? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, just to go into some more details about kind of how the – the view has progressed on this game. I mean, this was something where, like I mentioned, the the Bucks are an eight point favorite. It opened in May at six and a half, so it's moved a point and a half. I think some of that is like Dak's shoulder questions that have gone on. Maybe a little bit of it is is the fact that Zach Martin's going to be out, um, although not a whole lot. But I think there's also this component where people have just gotten more positive on the Bucks, maybe because they they look good during the preseason and Brady looked good, all that sort of that sort of stuff. Um, 
I don't know if you're that familiar with kind of like the new prospects that are coming to the league, this and that, but one guy that I'm interested to watch for the Cowboys is Micah Parsons, who was the first linebacker selected. Supposedly he's this guy that they may use in pass rush. They may use uh, traditional, you know, outside linebacker sort of stuff. Um, what do you think about this like linebacker chess piece sort of sort of situation? Have you ever come across some of that in, in your time and how difficult or valuable can it be to implement something like that? Because the linebacker position is one of these positions that's gotten beaten down at least a little bit as far as what mm-hmm. people perceive the value is. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting. I, I would say, you know, if he's, I don't know, is he, is he going to primarily be like a middle linebacker or yeah, I think he's going to be a middle linebacker, although he could be blitzing quite a bit. It depends on Quinn. Like, yeah. Quinn traditionally is someone who didn't blitz a lot, right? But then the second half of last season, he did. The pass rush for the Cowboys is, I don't know. It's not like it, they have, they have uh, Demarcus Lawrence and some other guys. It's okay, but this is something he's really good at, is attacking. So they, they may, they I, may I employ say, him in that way. Yeah, I would say in general, like, I, it would be kind of an unusual look to have, like, your middle linebacker frequently – like lining up on the line of scrimmage and rushing on like say yeah. like typical plays, but you know, if it's third down, I'm sure like they could find some things to, you know, get them up there or, you know, blitz them from off the ball, or maybe it's, you know, second and long. And it's kind of like a situation where you can pass rush. Maybe there's some creative things that they do there. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting to kind of see, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. That's a, that's sort of a tough transition to be like an off ball guy. And then simultaneously, you know, be like, a guy who can like put their hand down and rush. And like, you know, it sounds like he's a genetic freak. So maybe yeah. he can do it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think it'll be, it'll be sort of interesting to kind of see how that goes. You know, can he win one-on-one against a tackle or guard or whatever it is. Um, but uh, I think just, you know, from the place that I was like, there was sort of a limited investment at the, at the linebacker position. And so we didn't always have too many situations where we had guys that could, you know, do something like that. Um, I mean, there'd be times where guys would be blitzing or they'd be lined up on a line of scrimmage and, 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 you know, rush, but to like basically turn them into like a like full-time pass rusher on like, you know, rush situations, that wasn't exactly something that, you know, we were doing, but um, it'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it, it'll be, yeah, I'm interested to see him. I mean, I, I wrote an article earlier this year looking at him as potentially like a defensive rookie of the year type of guy. It's weird because I feel like he is, a lot of ways, like even a better prospect than guys we saw like Devin White and Devin Bush, who were much earlier picks. But um, there were so many offensive players who went this year that people weren't thinking about them. And, you know, I kind of also like this idea of like the Cowboys defense will get better. Um, so therefore, he's like the main piece that they brought in. So therefore, he'll get a lot of credit for the fact for the fact that the, that the defense gets better. So I think that's kind of an interesting angle for this game. Um I guess my, I don't know my, my overall point for this. I think it's, it's a, it's a good matchup. I think maybe there's a lot built into people's expectations when it comes to Dak's shoulder, when it comes to the defenses, when it comes to everything else that you have a lot of outs for Dallas, keeping this closer than we're hoping for. And um, you know, we'll, we'll end up seeing what, what happens here. Uh, we have one more segment left to go and I'm going to let Ryan uh, discuss his, his game NFL breaking uh, new strategy. I'm calling it a little bit on the galaxy brain side, but you know, a lot of great ideas have come from, from started off uh, in that as being seen that way. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about Western and Southern in these uncertain times, life is full of questions. Like when should I start thinking about life insurance? 
Uh, Ryan's probably not at that point yet. Uh, I may be. But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them, backed by 130 years of experience. Together, we can leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement and investments, compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. And lastly here, Manscaped is back. So it's <laughs> fantasy football draft season is upon us. It's time to put the PP back in PPR league. <laughs> Who wrote these? Uh, with the sponsors of today's show, Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming, just launched the new Performance Package 4.0. That's right, not 2.0, not 3.0, 4.0. Don't ne- <laughs> don't neglect your balls like the Packers front office has been neglecting Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Again, I did not write this. Uh, join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get ready for kickoff by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with promo code PFF. This will help you tame that Troy Palomalu in your pants. <laughs> this really is getting better. Uh, get 20% off and free shipping with promo code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off. And free shipping with promo code PFF at manscaped.com. If your significant other is nagging you about how much time you put into your fantasy team, you might as well gift them with some beautiful balls with Manscaped. Okay, got through that. All right, so here we go, Rod. <laughs> I don't know if we can follow up that with, with something even better here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the floor to discuss a theory. I don't know if you want me to set this up at all, but you, you've done some research this offseason and you're here to break the NFL. Give it to me. Okay. Um, first of all, I have to apologize to any kickers if I start costing people some jobs because <laughs> there is a chance that you know some of these guys will not. If this actually got implemented frequently around the league, you know, that some of these guys that you know have low kick trajectories would would have some trouble sticking around the NFL. But um, I yeah, sort of just well, think we know we, we already we're we're already costing running backs tons of money in the analytics yeah. community. So now we're coming for kickers. We're coming for you, kickers. Okay. So um, I've actually brought this up multiple times on like the team side of things. And I just got laughed at because it's like basically a, it sounds like a meme. And I just think <laughs> it's funny because like I actually really strongly think that it's something that, you know, teams should be considering. And um, at, at the very least, like, you know, studying or, or you know, having workouts and looking into this. And um, basically the, the idea is that when you actually take some of the data and see where the ball is, and like the flight path of a ball on field goals, um, there's actually a chance that you could probably block a, like a fairly high percentage of field goal kicks if you um, you know had a certain player on your roster that was you know capable of getting very high up with like their height and their vertical. So this idea basically is that um, it's, you know, a, a, one of the great parts about this is, you know, there's more and more resources and, and like there's more data available now, as opposed to a few years ago, like when I was trying to basically promote this idea, like internally, it was essentially like, you're like, no, like, like, in, in, and in order to even like build a data set to do this, like you would have had to bring in kickers, you would have had to bring in like players that had never played football before and, and like experiment with all these things. But now, um, really like the breakthrough to me is this company Trackman, which does the Sunday night football broadcast. They do the, um, they have the ball, I believe it's Sunday night football, but they have the ball flight tracking, like using radar technology. And it's, it's really awesome. Like they can tell you 
like the power behind the ball. They can tell you the apex of the, of the flight. They can tell you that, you know, how far the field goals would be good from. And when we would actually play on Sunday night football and I'm like up in the booth, like I would use the track man information that was showing up on the broadcast. And I would communicate that to our, you know, our staff during the game, because for example, like they might, you know, compile data on uh, how far, a certain kicker was kicking in pregame and, you know, maybe he was, you know, the farthest he attempted was 53 in pregame, but you know, the, the track man data was showing that he could, his kicks would have been good from 61. Well then that informs our defensive coordinator. If he's like managing a situation at the end of a half or an end of a game and like knowing generally speaking that the kicker is capable of kicking from that distance. Like it was very useful information that you otherwise really wouldn't have. And it would have just been a complete guess. So this is wait wait this is available pregame to to take no well so they 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 were they compiled TrackMan for the Sunday night football games was yeah. like compiling this pregame and then it might show up on the broadcast like all right okay. pregame okay. did this or maybe like you know there was a kick in the first quarter that was a forty eight yard kick but right. you know that it would have been good from fifty nine well like that information can be helpful and useful and um, you know it certainly appears to be pretty accurate and like the TrackMan technology is is so exceptional that you have something like like it, most of the PGA tour players are, are actually have their own track man device to track their, you know, their, their flight of their, of their ball when they're, you know, hitting on the practice range or, you know, hitting whatever, whenever they're doing sort of experiments with their, with their game, because, you know, you can get so much good information. Like, are you fading? Like, is the draw, like, where should you be aiming? Like, you know, should you increase your loft? Like there's such interesting stuff going on there well anyways like i i personally would wish that the TrackMan technology was used in all stadiums and all broadcasts because it's so interesting and so useful and also for this strategy that i'm suggesting it would be very helpful to have that information um but at this time like that's not something that's going on but if like if you were part of a broadcast team or a producer like you should strongly consider you know getting this implemented because i think it's really interesting for the viewer and at the same time like from a team side, like, I think it's really useful and helpful as well. But anyways, really the the main idea that I have here is that I've taken a little bit of a little bit of a look at some of the data in terms of, you know, some of the track man stuff that's not, you know, current kickers, but guys that, you know, like are currently not in the league, but maybe have used some of the, uh, the track man uh, technology to sort of gather some data on this. And um, what's really interesting is, you can sort of get a sense for like, okay, where is the ball located at the line of scrimmage, like on these field goal kicks? Where is the ball located above the line of scrimmage? Um, where is the ball located one yard behind the line of scrimmage? Like, where is the ball located two yards behind the line of scrimmage? Because on a typical field goal rush, like you do get a significant amount of penetration. Like most, you know, field goal rushes, it might be getting an exact number. You might have to use some next gen stats to like determine what sort of penetration you can get on the, you know, the field goal rush, but you're looking at something like one plus yards of penetration on most field goal rushes. And yeah, like, I mean, I guess the, the blockers are like in a very much like a bend don't break type of philosophy. Yes. Yeah. And like the thinking is, so the ball is, is placed eight yards behind the line of scrimmage on essentially every field goal. Like that's like the universal standard. And um, you see a lot of these field goal block attempts, like some of the strategies that are employed um, will include like double teaming, like a guard, for example, like you have might have two or three guys in there that are just driving back this guy as much as possible. And then at the kick point, you see the, these guys who are still relatively on the ground, or maybe they can get a few inches off the ground. They'll like reach their hands up and try to get a ball. And like some of these kick, these blocks that do occur, you know, 
they, it's because they get such penetration. Maybe they're two yards in the backfield or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this is where my strategy comes in. And uh, I think it's really interesting in the sense that, you know, it would require like little to nothing to experiment with and to, you know, bring a guy in and work them out and like sort of gather some data on if this is feasible. But um, my argument is, is that when you actually look at where the balls are, the um, if you take that situation where you say that you make an estimate that, okay, roughly um, on a typical field goal block, the, the, the rush gets roughly one yard of penetration. Um, well, you would, well, track man. And like these other technologies, like you can, you can get, you can really know how far the ball is above the line of scrimmage at that point. And the median, you know, for like the NFL would roughly be something like 11 and a half feet above the line of scrimmage at that point. And the average is maybe 11 and a half feet, somewhere around that range for most kicks. Now, some guys are a little bit higher and a little bit lower. Um, but you know, most of the launch angles of the kicks are something around like 28, 29, um, degrees and based off of that you can sort of like build a projection you know based on roughly where are these field goals going to be at the line of scrimmage where are they going to be one yard behind the line of scrimmage where are they going to be two yards behind the line of scrimmage and so my sort of argument is that um that number is not particularly high like say if you could consistently you know get a high jumping or tall person one yard behind the line of scrimmage and get them jumping as high as they can that, you know, you could block a significant amount of these kicks. And what I actually think is if you had your defensive linemen not even really attempting to get their hands up, but just exclusively focusing on creating as much of a penetration of the, of the, uh, the guards and the tackles, and, and they really can't touch the centers. That's one of the rules in the NFL is like you kind of just have to be lined up off the center. But, you know, just creating as much of a – uh, pe- a penetration where like hopefully you could get something like you know one and a half to two yards of depth into the backfield well at that point if you were able to consistently do that even even to the point of you know one yard into the backfield which is pretty standard around the league then you could have a guy particularly say take players that are super tall in the nba or take players that have just like exceptional verticals in the nba that are also very tall and like you could block a lot of these kicks or at the very least, you know, like come close to blocking or possibly deter some of these kickers or make them change their trajectory or change their launch angle, which um, I think could have some pretty significant implications. So I've done some research on these NBA players. I've done research on guys that maybe, you know, aren't good enough for the NBA, or maybe they're like a D league type guy. And it's sort of a benefit from uh, this strategy standpoint that some of these like insanely tall guys are sort of phased out of the league or they just, you know, they don't have like a market in the NBA because the league is so like three and athleticism oriented that, you know, just some of these guys, they, maybe they play a few minutes or maybe they're just developing in, in like the lower levels and they just, they're not really considered like an NBA guy anymore, as opposed to, you know, 15 years ago, these seven foot two, seven foot three guys, like they, they had a role on an NBA team and now they're sort of getting phased out. But um, because of that, the, the salaries that these guys are making are not particularly high. And like, I'm not sure if you could get some freak like Giannis making $40 million a year. I don't know if you could convince him to get involved in this, but um, just because of like, the, you're not gonna be able to pay him that much money. Yeah. And yeah. I don't even know if they ultimately have like the exact body type that you're looking for. But um, 
So, so based on those numbers that I was mentioning, okay, so you say roughly one yard behind the line of scrimmage, you have uh, like a median field goal uh, height at something like 11 and a half feet and an average field goal height at something 11 and a half feet. And I have some numbers here that, um, you know, the 25th percentile of the field goal heights is something around, you know, like 10.9 feet and the 75th percentile is something like 12 feet and like three inches right. in terms of like the distribution of where these kicks are. So I think you could actually get better than one yard behind the line of scrimmage if your defensive line was not attempting to block the kick and you only had one player that was really attempting to get vertical height. And those guys were just strictly trying to drive the defensive, the offensive line back as far as they could. So, um, but based off that information, I'm, I'm now, I like look at these, this NBA, NBA combine information and uh, a few names like jump off. Some guys haven't done the combine testing, but some have done the testing. And the first name, in my opinion, that comes to mind, and I think this would be hilarious and it would like fit well with like the meme concept of the of, of 2021 where you have Dogecoin and you have like GameStop and AMC. Like this is like basically a meme and it's like something that, you know, guys sitting at a bar probably have like talked to each other about. And they're like, why don't you just put some ridiculously tall guy out there to block field goals? Well, I think with all these variables, like I think that strategy is very viable. So the name that to me stands out the most is this guy Taco Fall for the Celtics who is, um, he's seven foot five without shoes. I believe, I believe at the combine, he tested seven, seven with shoes. His -hmm. standing reach was 10 feet, two inches. And then his maximum reach after his vertical was something like over 12 and a half feet or around 12 and a half feet. It's like, well, if he's able to get that sort of height in the average, you know, height of the ball is far below that. Like you all of a sudden are talking about a scenario where like he's in the, in the range of like, even if he can get half of his typical vertical, like possibly blocking like a high percentage of these kicks, like, and, and so a guy like Taco Fall, like he's on a very low contract in the NBA because, you know, players of his skill set and, you know, like these guys, it's, it's sort of tough for them to get up and down the the court and things like that. So I think he makes something like $600,000 a year in the NBA and, the minimum contract in the NFL exceeds that. And at the very least, like I, in my opinion, you could, you could explore this situation and sort of try to gather some data of like, all right, if we did have our defensive line, you know, ex- exclusively focused on penetrating, how much, you know, depth could we create in a typical scenario? You know, if taco falls wearing, like if he's wearing uh like shoulder pads, if he's wearing a helmet, like you probably yeah. want to give him the smallest shoulder pads possible or like the lightest, uh, gear in general or like i'm sure you could screw around with even like how thick their shoes are and like th- there's all sorts of variables you can mess around with like okay give the, like are there rules on like how big the gloves guys have like because what if you know you had gloves that exceeded the length of their hand by like a couple extra inches like and like yeah. like i don't know if there's currently rules about that in the nfl like maybe there is maybe there isn't maybe they'd have to employ some things but you know if you could consistently be getting you know reaches well over 12 feet from these guys, like they're going to be involved in the field goal block and like, they're going to be able to block kicks and a guy like taco fall, like, um, you know, I don't know if he'd want to do it. You know, the other guy that I was looking at was like Boban, um, for, I think he's, I don't even know what team he currently plays for, but he's something like seven foot three. And he has like the biggest fans in the history of the NBA. Um, and then even some of these other names of like guys that, you know, maybe are like super athletes, but they just don't, 
currently have the skills to be like a significant contributor at the NBA level. Um, and one name in particular that stood out to me was this guy named um, Jericho Sims. And I, I don't know his true talent level and things like that, but I think he was like the 57th pick in this most recent draft. And he's something like 6'10", and he had a 44-inch standing vertical or like running vertical or whatever. But the absolute maximum reach that he hit was like over 12 and a half feet as well. And it's like, okay, well, will a player like that be more negatively impacted from like wearing, um, you know, football gear? Like probably. So like I would guess that, you know, there's a more of a negative impact on the on the total height that they could reach. Right. But um so the guys who are just purely tall, you don't have to worry about that. But between tall and much. they have long yeah. arms, their absolute reach. Like right. so ta- I mean, taco fall without jumping, he's 10, basically reaching 10-2 and like 10-3, whatever. And, yeah. you know, he gets ha- he gets 12-inch vertical, which he sh- his vertical is something like 25 inches or whatever. He gets yeah. half of his typical vertical. I mean, he's he's in the mix of blocking these things. Yeah, and- yeah. And, and so I guess some important context here. So uh, I mean, I'm not going to – okay, so number one – you, this is something that I'd ask you about is that there's a perception that the trajectory changes a lot based upon how far the field goal is, but you found that that's not even necessarily the case, right? So you don't, you don't have more line drive, like significantly on average for every single kicker is not doing more long drives from longer distances versus being closer in. Yeah. So the, I guess, you know, from the data that I've seen, and I think you could kind of fine tune this and maybe to some degree it exists, but like the launch angles are pretty consistent and you know, that the absolute uh, like height, the ball reaches, you know, at the apex point of the kick, you know, that might be impacted based off of the kick power. Um, And, you know, maybe there's a small change in the angle, but a lot of these kickers, they, they want to be consistent and like kick consistently at a certain angle. And, um, you know, you might see some lower kicks in general because those guys are like really pushing it and really just trying to kick the ball as hard as possible because it's a 58 yard kick or whatever and, and yeah. things like that. And they're almost less precise on their launch angle and things like that. But um, if anything, you would be more involved and more likely to block the longer kicks where there might be a slight decrease in the trajectory as opposed to like something that's like a 25 yard field goal. I'm really interested, like to the point of like, uh, extra points like I would be very interested to see on at that distance with most kicks like could this be something that where that kicker gets or where that blocking person gets involved um and and there's a lot of names like there's a lot of guys you know seven foot one seven foot two guys that are just you know not NBA caliber guys that you know maybe they're playing in Europe or maybe they're just you know developing and maybe they have the uh, ability to get involved and, and disrupt some of these plays. And, and maybe there's an opportunity to, you know, get get themselves on an NFL practice squad. And maybe it's like, okay, this week we think we're playing a team that, you know, kicks the ball lower than an average, or maybe you're playing Justin Tucker and you think that his launch angle is higher than average and the kick, the guy might not be able to be involved, but realistically at the end of the day, this would be your last player on your active roster. So like whatever it is, 46 or 48 guys, and they could have an enormous impact on your ability to win or lose games because so many of these kicks have a large impact. And um, I think the most important thing, if you were on the team side, would be studying, you know, how much actual actual depth into the line of scrimmage can you create with your rushes? And like what has been observed in the past, it might not be reflective of what actually could happen if those players were exclusively focused on creating this. Now, at the other, the other thing too is because of these rules with like jumping over the line of scrimmage and, and whatnot, the player would have to be aligned on the line of scrimmage to start. 
um, in terms of like them getting jumping high because they technically like if you start from behind the line of scrimmage, you can't like land on the line or it's a penalty. So there's a little bit of some things you kind of would have to hash out and sort of figure out. But um, I think it would be super interesting. And, and then theoretically, depending on what that player's skill set is, like you could cross train them a little bit to do something like, okay, like fades on the goal line or like, like, okay, I like, like never going next guy, level here. Has two plays, like he either runs a slant or he runs a fade and just like, if I don't know, it's, it, it'd be interesting to think about, you know, if it's an athletic guy, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the end of the first half and the other team's throwing a Hail Mary from the 50 yard line. Well, a lot of offenses or a lot of defenses will sub in a, you know, uh, a guy like a receiver or something to yeah. go try to bat a ball down. Well, like if you have a guy who's six ten with a forty four inch vertical, like you'd want that guy on your hail mary defense for sure. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's all sorts of interesting things to think about there. On, uh, but either way, I just think it's something where, like, the, if you actually look at all the data, like, there's a very compelling argument, particularly if you're gathering a little bit more data that, like, and, and even on the team side with like some of the you know, GPS tracking of where the actual offensive linemen and defensive linemen end up at the kick point. Um, I think there's something there. And I think, you know, if I was Bill Belichick right now, I'm calling Brad Stevens and being like, Hey, you know, can you bring your tall guys over here? Like, like, can we have a little like workout like after practice on Friday and just like see what this looks like? Because, you know, taco fall is on the Celtics and Belichick is, you know, he's always invested in a ton of resources into special teams and it could be something as easy as like, all right, well, Taco comes on Fridays, flies to games on Saturdays. And like, he's like a three day a week guy. And like, we win he's like games. moonlighting, moonlighting as a NFL block kick specialist. Yeah. I mean, okay, I can say it. So I like this. I mean, I think also good context is like field goals are so automatic now. So if you can block a material percentage of them, like it really changes the whole dynamic on, on how much these things are worth now. So a couple of things, devil's advocate sort of thing. So I think the recruiting aspect is interesting because like you mentioned, I think at one point in time, it was like 10% of all the seven foot tall people in the entire world were in the NBA. And of course that's gone down as that, as, as the importance here. So you have, you know, you have some, some freaks out there who are looking for work. So I think that that works well. I mean, you probably might be difficult to get like an NBA guy who can get drafted in the NBA to come over, but there are lots of options I'm sure we don't even know about. We just don't have the, the data on. So that, that, that's fine there. Uh, okay, so number, looking at like secondary effects here, is there any concern that you cause the other team to go for it more often, like in these, in these uh, you know, marginal to-go sort of situations? And that, that yeah. whittles away some of your benefit because of that. Or you call it, cause them to go for two then more often. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it would be a situation where like, we'll deal with it when we get there. Like if it's first, <laughs> let's see if it works. Yeah. And if it does. Okay. And then it somehow like becomes not valuable because teams aren't attempting those things. Then, you know, maybe you just don't have the player active, like, but, but in the, in the meantime, in the short term with so many field goal kicks, so many extra points. Um, I mean, the, the percentage of games that are, you know, won or lost, you know, by margins of like three or less is so high. Um, and, and really trying to guess like what percentage of kicks you could block. That's where I, I don't have an answer. Like, I, I don't know, but, you know, it makes me think, you know, if, if this guy's absolute reach exceeds, you know, the 75th percentile, like is that is the jumping reach exceeds the 75th percentile of where these kicks are like, right. 
he's going to be involved for sure. Oh yeah. And like, oh yeah. And it's going to get in kickers heads or like, maybe there's a, the, one of the secondary effects that I was thinking is like, you could end up in a scenario where like the typical field goal, then, you know, the, the kickers attempt to use a higher launch angle and how that would t- turn out if these kickers are changing some way that they kicked for the last, you know, 10 years of their life, or maybe it ends up in a situation where this, the, the holder is now no longer eight yards and they have to move to nine yards. Right. And how does that impact the edges? Like, do, like if you have players rushing off the edges and how does that impact the total operation time of the kick? Because, you know, it would take longer and it's like, right. the further back problem? you are, the more likely to someone off the edge could, could block it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, and it, and it does allow for even more of a, a little bit more. Just because the angle is not as, it's like, it's not as steep of an angle to get to it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like for these long snappers that have been, you know, doing eight yard snaps for their entire life, like that's different too. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. it would change things, but um, either way, I, in my opinion, the relative risk is near nothing if yeah. you're on the team side and you know, the potential upside is like your 46th player on the team could have a huge impact on winning and losing games. And it would also be hilarious. <laughs> you know, I would want to see this just because I would want to see, like, I'm just imagining in my mind, taco taco fall there like they're playing you're playing against like the lions or something and then um it's like fourth and two they're gonna kick a field goal and then dan campbell just orders the code red and they just decide to fake it and have two guys just try to destroy taco <laughs> just try yeah, to like no, I, just I try to kill this guy just try to like kill this guy or, or to see him drop back into coverage or something would just be so awesome like that alone would yeah. just would just would just be so good that um yeah, it would definitely be uh, adding some excitement to the league. I thought a little bit about like, okay, what about like a, a three-man rush situation on third downs where you have him playing like nose tackle and he's just like <laughs> shuffling back and forth, like following the quarterback's eyes, just going for a bat down. Like, cause I think that too would, like, I don't necessarily want to like exhaust these guys, particularly if they're like still under contract with the NBA team or like they're still yeah. pursuing that. You don't want to like, with them at an, an at-risk injury situation but i think that yeah. would be funny too to like well imagine you could structure the back end of your coverage knowing that the quarterback like can't get the ball to, to the middle yeah, of the field no, seriously like, <laughs> i'm telling you you're you're like defensive backs everyone play in uh, everyone play outside leverage because they can't throw to the inside <laughs> like <laughs> so that would, yeah yeah there's a lot of possibilities here i like it um, I think it has the potential to make some people mad and say that you're ruining the game, which I love because that's 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 what we're all here for. Um, yeah, so NFL coaches, I know you're all listening. I know everyone listens to this podcast. So if you're out there, consult, consult here with uh at, at Pagnetti uh Ryan and get, get at him about this, uh his new theory. Oh, too. yeah. And one thing I'd say is um if you're a team. I know like the TrackMan company sells a device that they, you know, they offer to teams. And the first thing you could do is, you know, get one of these things and, you know, start gathering information on your specific kicker. And, um, you know, that even like, you know, have tryouts, like maybe you want to have like an emergency list of kickers. Like, you know, this, this device is so useful and so interesting and so valuable, like being able to really differentiate between, you know, tryout kickers, this could be incredibly helpful. And, um, you know, in, in terms of this potential strategy, like it would be very interesting to see, you know, like, okay, like where are these balls for our kicker? Where are these balls for these tryout kickers? Like maybe at some point you bring in a guy like you, like a, a, a taco fall, or you, you convince somebody like if I'm taco fall, like I'm looking at this, like, Hey, I, I might be able to make, you know, like one, $2 million a year. Like, I don't even know like what the salary distribution could, could end up being like, 
if it was as easy as you just get a tall guy and like, okay, maybe that it's more of a minimum salary guy, but like if there's certain players that are just particularly good at this because of how big they are, like taco yeah. fall, I, I want to say is near 300 pounds. Like that, that helps too, in terms of like his girth of like being able to, you know, hold up in there right, as opposed right. to some of these, like, you know, tall guys are like very light and they're like 220 pounds or something. And like, they might get thrown around a little bit by, you know, offensive linemen and things like that. But, um, I just think the relative risk is like near zero. Like you bring some guys in for workouts and then like see what happens. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, if it works in practice, I mean, I mean, the risk is like it's reported on and you're made fun of basically. <laughs> That's a big risk. I mean, like the, the upside is like you possibly win, you know, two more games this year because you blocked kicks at, it, it, over the course of a game or something. And it's like, find it like, and also if you did this and you succeeded as a GM, like you're in the mix of for winning GM of the year for like just having this ridiculously <laughs> innovative strategy. Um, but I like that every team, like every, now you need to find 32, like uh, what if their salaries start going up? What do you find out these guys are worth like $10 million a year or something? I, that, like that's, that. I mean, I, I was say, I was thinking about this. I'm like, look, you know, if this guy say was capable of blocking something like 50% of field goals and extra points or whatever the number is, that, that's just an obscure estimate. But like, you consider the expected points added and the win probability added over the course of a year. And like, yeah, we're talking like, you know, a very high salary that is, you know, maybe 10 times as much as they can get in the NBA. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause it wouldn't that's, necessarily be like all replaceable either. Like if you had a certain, a few guys who could really like get to that yes. you know, median to 75th percentile sort of thing, they'd be worth so much more than the guys who can right. only get to like the 25th I, or something like I that. I believe taco his, his standing reach without jumping was something like five inches higher than any guy in NBA history that they had at the yeah. combine. So like, he's the guy, in my opinion, that I'm most interested in. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, like you have Belichick who's so pro special teams and thinking outside the box and Belichick in the past has, I'm sure he was probably upset, but he was one of the people that was doing the jump over the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Yeah. Box. Yeah. And that's kind of out now because you yeah, can't, you can't touch. You can only do it. You can only do it if you completely clear without touching anybody yeah yeah um so i think it'd be interesting you know give brad stevens a call and be like dude we gotta just you know have this guy in for a visit and gather some gather some information and see what happens all right well let's do it i'll um i'll tag taco uh, on twitter when we put this <laughs> put this out i'll do one of those things like where dan Oslowski used to like put out some analysis and he'd tag like 15 people on it so I'll, I'll tag i'll tag freaks any any uh any any tall freaks out there slash slash football coaches uh check this out but awesome. hey more of this we, we gave you before a few weeks ago we gave you 15 20 minutes on quarterback sneaks now we're giving you uh, a half an hour on uh <laughs> jumping like really freaks jumping and blocking field goals this is the stuff people want this is this is what the people want so i'm glad to be able to give it to them and we will do that now every tuesday uh ryan will will be back on there again follow ryan on twitter at peg and eddie ryan uh we'll try to keep this a crypto free zone also but we'll see we may we may, we may get into that eventually as as the season goes along all right buddy awesome thank you all right, man. Uh, everyone else, I'll be talking at you again later this week. We're going to do a solo pod previewing some of the stuff for this weekend, and then we'll continue that format for the rest of the season. Uh, but thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and I'll talk to you then. Bye.